Andrew Downey's new book is The Greatest Show on Earth. 51 years. We're celebrating the 51st year anniversary of uh, the Mexico World Cup 1970. Did you live in Mexico because of the 1970 World Cup? No, I mean, I don't remember the 1970 World Cup. I was only three. I had just been working on a kind of dead-end job in, in, in Scotland and I really wanted to get out and see the world. And I ended up in Mexico. And once I got to Mexico, I decided to stay. I loved it and had a great time. And I was there for, for seven years and I have nothing but great memories of Mexico. That's wicked. Um, Chicharito is the only big... And, and Blanco, the guy with the hop, the hoppy footballer. Demo. Yes. Demo Blanco, yeah. Well, bless you. Yes, I, I can't pronounce that first name. Well, does it mean anything, that name? <laughs> Quetemoc. Well, Demo was the name of a former, Brazil, a former Mexican ruler. Oh, oh, of course, it's an Aztec name. Yeah, that's why it's got funny vowels uh, from an yeah. English anglicised. Is the Aztec culture still well-preserved in Mexico? Or, or buildings, oh, not God. culture. Yeah, I mean, if you uh, buildings, I mean, if you go downtown, I mean, there is still you, the, you'll still see, you know, what's called Templo Mayor, which is was, was an old uh, building from the from the 16th century. You still you, you still see uh, a lot of this around Mexico. There's also a huge amount of colonial architecture in, in, in Mexico City as well. But yeah, there are, you know, Mexico when you're in when you are in Mexico, you do get the sense that you are living in a kind of open air museum a lot of the times, and it's a fascinating, fascinating place because of that. Because you have that whole, you know, indigenous culture that is so close to the surface in, in, in Mexico, plus the whole, you know, conquistador is the whole Spanish influence, and it's all intermingled, and it's all it all makes for a fascinating, fascinating place. And Mexico really is a really is a fascinating country. So you, you speak English and also Scottish, separate languages. Then you live in Mexico and speak Spanish. Haiti, they all speak right. French, Creole. So how long did you spend in Haiti and who was in charge at that stage? I was in Haiti in, from 93 to 95. It was a military government in charge for most of the time. They were they had overthrown Jean-Bertrand Aristide, who was the democratically elected president. And when I was there, the US was trying to put Aristide back in power. Clinton was trying to put Aristide back in power. And they eventually succeeded after a year uh, the military were forced to give up power. Uh, in October 1994, Aristide went back uh, and I left at the beginning in 1995. Two years in Haiti is a long time for anybody. It's a, it's a difficult country, a, a, a wonderful country. I had some of the best times of my life in Haiti. It was a, it's, a, it's an amazing place. It's so extreme and so intense that anybody who goes to Haiti never, ever forgets their time in Haiti. I know of people who have adopted orphans from Haiti. I know someone who was, a, she called herself a stowaway uh, because she, her mum was pregnant when they fl- fled the country uh, in the late 90s, mid-1980s, mid to late 1980s, um, they left. But with the earthquakes and the political um, overthrowing at the moment, I hope everyone you know back there is safe. Yeah, I mean, uh, I don't have that much contact with Haiti anymore. Uh, most of the people that I knew are, are no longer there. Yeah, gone. You know, and I've only been back a couple of times in the, since I left. So, you know, I look at Haiti with a, a real sense of sadness and also gratitude for what Haiti gave to me. I was there at a, 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 a time that, that was that was there was a lot going on, and as a journalist, it was a fascinating time, and I learned so much from Haiti. But then, I'll always have a special place in my heart. Fab. But then, of course, you have to learn Portuguese uh, when you go to live in Brazil. I know that they speak English, and of course, football is a second language there. Did it surprise you as to how dominant football was in their culture, or did you know quite well? Um, I mean, I 
everybody knows, I, I wouldn't even say how much Brazilians love football, how, how Brazilians are identified with football. I mean, Alex Bellas in his book, he, make, he makes the, the, this great point where he said it's Brazilian football is kind of like Tibetan monk. It's, you know, the two words just, just go together and have always gone together. It was wonderful for me because being a big football fan and finally going and living in Rio and then in Sao Paulo and going to the Maracanã and seeing all these great names, seeing all these uh, great players and these you know historic clubs, it was you know it was a it was an amazing experience. This evening, I'm going to be reading the Sunshine Kids, and by, when this goes out, uh, I will have spoken to Wayne Barton, who helps Rafael and Fabio da Silva. They were 18. When they played their first season in Man U, they actually couldn't. They joined at 17, but couldn't play until they were 18 as international kids. Uh, and I, I can't remember which bit of Brazil they're from because I haven't read the book yet. Um, but they're from Rio. They played with Fluminense, if I'm not mistaken. Fab, I think that's correct. Thank you very much. Um, and they were, or at least Rafael was, part of the Olympic winning side. Was it Rio? 2000? No, 2008. Um, Beijing. No, Brazil won the Olympic gold for the first time in 2016. Oh, so it was Rio. And were you there? Did you cover the Olympics? Yeah, I was there for the final. Yeah, yeah it was quite a, quite a day. They won on penalties against Germany. Neymar scoring the winning penalty, of course. Ah, yes. Quite was... a day. Quite a day. Especially after 2014 and 7-1, this was kind of some, some, kind of, uh, some kind of payback for them. I remember going upstairs. I, I wasn't watching the game for some reason. I turned on and John Murray was bellowing, Germany 7 Brazil nil, and it was the biggest. It was like Janice from Friends. It was that kind of oh my god moment, uh, and then Oscar got one back. But that period between the disaster, the Maracanazão number two, number dos, and the Olympic win, did that time with what was going on in the country because of the political upheaval? I mean, they put all their hope into this show pony who I don't like. I don't like Neymar, and I never will. I like Richarlison because he came through Watford briefly. He had 12 good games and then we made 25 million quid off of him. But in the mid-2010s, was Brazil a good place to be, either as a football supporter or a dweller? Well, it depends what, uh, you know, what your criteria is. I mean, Brazil is a fascinating country. It's an enormous country. It has 210 million people. And there's a huge difference between living in, you know... The rainforest. Uh, and living in, you know, you know, rainforest or living in the northeast where it's very dry or living in the south where it's very you know european you know it's like asking if is you know is britain a good place to live you know, mm. it's very different whether you're living in you know you're living in the Orkney islands or you're living in london or you're living out in the you know in the Brandon. middle of wales you know it's, yeah. it's it's very it's very different i mean i love brazil i mean brazil again you know i'm i'm, I'm tied to brazil for the rest of my life you know my wife's brazilian and you know having spent so long there you know i, I feel as brazilian as i do is a new Scottish. I think what I should do is buy the English version of Dr. Socrates, footballer, philosopher, legend, and then the Portuguese version, because I'm a classics graduate. I'm used to comparing, sorry, this sounds horribly pretentious, English, Latin, uh, Latin English, Greek sometimes as well. So it, it must be a, a huge thrill, <laughs> or to put it in footballese. Andrew, you must be delighted. I'm over the moon. Completely over the moon. You've um, got to just take each book as it comes. Oh, that's that's why um, you can't get carried away. But credit to the lads; they stuck in. And your your translator. Can we credit your translator as well? Andre Cafuri uh, translated my my book from English into Portuguese. So, yeah, great. A big thanks to uh, uh, Andre. Who wrote um, the Garincha book? The book is also in French. 
the book's also in French and Italian and Turkish. Came out in Turkish just a couple of months ago. I spoke uh, to French, Italian, Turkish. Yeah, that's wicked. I spoke to Jonathan uh, Wilson, and John said that my book, if you include American English, Inverting the Pyramid, is available in twenty languages. So he's got like Polish versions yeah. and Czech versions. Yeah, this is Socrates is now I think in six French, English, Italian, Polish. Turkish and Portuguese, yeah. But you don't think about that and when you're writing. And it's supposed to come out in Arabic. Jesus! It's, it's, wow. Yeah. We'll have all of those in the football library. I've, I haven't even thought about all the translations. What if someone who's going because the, the football library, I should say, and you do get your football library card, and you can have Socrates or Pele on it. I don't know who you want. Which one do you want on the physical football library card? No, Pat Stanton. Oh, of course. Why? What a stupid, foolish question. Before going for the high beast, we've got to finish with Brazil, but I'll, I'll write a note. Yeah, sorry, that was... Uh, <laughs> you were quite right to be um, outraged. Yeah, yeah, Pat Stanton. I don't know where the statue is going to be. Maybe at the bottom of Leith Walk, um, which is, <laughs> is a, a lovely part of the world, Edinburgh and Leith, which are... When you were born, they were two separate bits. But we'll get to that shortly, because I just want to finish with the fact that Dr. Socrates, which was your first book, you translated Gorincha's book or the, the biography of Grincha. So you've, you've lived with the Brazilian team of the 70s and 80s for a long, long time. Would it be stupid of me to ask your Brazilian 11 from all time? Um, yeah, because, uh, oh, I mean, I, I'm sure I have one. <laughs> but you're asking, you're putting me on the spot to remember immediately. I mean, I could tell you, I mean, I could tell you we've all done this in, in, in bars and with friends and hanging out. And, yeah, yeah, because my, done this. Um, my question is, who do you tell? Who do you tell can't play? Because you've got to get Garincha, Socrates, Pelé, but you can't then play Rivellino and Gerson and Dunga and everyone. You can only have five attackers. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's, it's a Zico, very good point. Zico, Vava. Um, yeah, there's... there's you know, some of these players, you know, some of the old-timers will say that, you know, the greatest Brazil team of all time was 1958 or 1962, not 1970. And some will say it's 1970, not 1982. So, related to Socrates, I mean, most people, most Brazilians would put Rai, his brother, in any Brazilian team before Socrates because his brother was a better player uh, and he won a lot more. So, you know, but do you put Socrates in because he's such a character, because he's such a leader? I mean, there's a, you know, with Brazil, there's a, there's a million of these questions, more than probably any other country. Yeah, and it's just so many great players. And who on earth are you going to put as number nine? Because El Phenomeno, as I've, I've started calling him El Phenomeno, I've got him over there, um, scoring his redemption goal in, is it Japan? Where was, oh, Yokohama. Where was the 2002 yeah, final? 2002, yeah. Where did you yeah, watch Yokohama. that game? I watched it on Copacabana Beach. Wow. Believe it or not. It's about eight o'clock in the morning, it was quite early. Yes. Yeah. Do, you, do you remember anything about the day? I do remember that. I remember the day and I remember the week very well because I watched it on Copacabana Beach and then I went home and I wrote a story for somebody uh, about watching it on the beach. And then that same day was, it was the annual gay parade in Brazil in Rio, which is one of the biggest in the world. Yeah, yeah they, they so, do carnivals there, Rio. It was, yeah, it was like a, a, a big carnival for the gay parade. And so I went to that in the afternoon with some friends because it's just a big, huge party and everyone hangs out and everyone drinks and you have a great time and everybody's singing and dancing. I went to that in the afternoon and then I remember what I really most remember about it all is when Brazil came home. They came home, they arrived home from Japan and they, they got on a bus and they were supposed to drive all the way from the airport to the far end of the town. 
and there was millions of people out on the streets waiting to see them and there were so many people and it took so long that they gave up halfway. So all the people like myself who were waiting in Copacabana oh, no. never, got to, never got to see them because they just gave up and said, you know, screw this. Uh, which left a lot of people very unhappy, one of, one of whom was me. So, but I remember that. I remember that being a night again. It was it was like the daily one. It was just a huge street party. There was millions of people out on the street drinking. I remember my friend fell into a fell into a sewer. <gasps> uh, stepped as he fell and stepped into a sewer because the 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 grating had was 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 half open and cut her leg and had to go to the uh, had oh, to go to the hospital no. and get a tetanus shot. That's what I remember. That is a hell of a story. That you've got to write about that. This is um. Brazil's 2002 World Cup win, the last time not just Brazil but any South American team won. And we talked in the first half about Qatar, which will be a mess. Um, Brian Glanville will be 91 at the time of the World Cup. Glanville is 90 this year. Um, A, have you met him? B, have you read, did you use the chapter of his story of the World Cup for your book about the 1970 World Cup, The Greatest Show on Earth? I haven't met him, and uh, I, I did use his book. I've had his book for a long time, uh, and it was always kind of the reference book for, for many years. Whenever I needed, needed to know a, a you know a score or a scorer or something like that, I would go back to to his book. But there was another book that was even more useful to me, which was uh, and it was written by I think someone called Ralph Finn. He wrote a book right after the World Cup that was only about the nineteen seventy World Cup. It, it, it's it's essentially a more detailed version of. Brian Glanville's book about one World Cup. So every game gets its own uh, match report and every game gets its own list of scorers and he uh, and he goes through it game by game. By game. Uh, and that was very useful to me. And uh, two other things, or a few other things were also very useful. Uh, Martin Peters and, and Bobby Moore wrote books about the 1970 World Cup. As soon as they came back, they wrote books. Uh, so I had their memories, you know, fresh from, from the tournament. And they were very useful, uh, as did Mario Zagallo. He wrote a book in, in Portuguese all about the 1970 World Cup. Again, go through and go through each each game, game by game, day by day. I mean, these uh, Pele did a very similar thing. Uh, so a lot of this stuff is, you know, you don't you don't see that anymore. I mean, you don't see players just writing, you know, a book about one particular tournament, not broken down in that same you know methodical way. And it was they, they, these books were very useful to me. I suppose you don't see the books because it's all online, because it's more instant. You can go straight online. But in those days, when life was slower and some would say better, uh, even though this call would be physically impossible today uh, in 1970, there are, yeah, several books written about the Brazil team. Stuart Horsfield has written about the 1982 team, which he thinks, because he lived through it, is the most glorious football team. And I I guess it's coloured by memories. Do you think if you were a bit older... And you remember the 82 team very well. Do you think, had you been born in, uh, 10 years earlier, you would recognise the 70 team because you'd have the, the memories that you had, this is a very convoluted question, in 82? So if your memories had been as fresh in 82 as 70, you'd appreciate the 70 team more? Anybody's rating of the greatest World Cup and the greatest team, it's all you know, closely entwined with what they remember. Uh, it's particularly you know, your first one, I should say. Um, people remember you know, their first World Cup with particular uh, clarity. And I mean, I remember 1978 with real clarity. I remember like, tiny bits in 1974. You know, it also depends on where you are in your life. You know, 1982, I remember watching 82 
I remember it was a glorious summer. I remember spending a lot of my time in 82 out on the golf course and, you know, out playing football myself. So I maybe never saw as many games. In 1990, which wasn't the greatest of World Cups, I have fantastic memories because I was there. Um, France, you know, was France a great World Cup? You know, who knows? I had a great time because I was there as well. So I think it's all, these memories are deeply personal. Uh, and I think that all feeds into how, you know, how well and how, you know, how much you loved each particular World Cup and each particular team. Mm-hmm. The other thing that must be great about these World Cup media centres is that you run into Paddy Barkley and Keir Radnidge and Brian Glanville. So can you just, uh, Hugh McIlvanny as well, have you been in the presence of Hugh? No, I, I actually got in touch with him shortly before he died, maybe a year before he died, and he wasn't well enough to see me. But I, I actually sent him, a, I found a picture of him with uh, Jean Saldana, who was the Brazilian coach before Zagallo. He was quite friendly with Saldana. And I found a picture in a Brazilian magazine of him uh, and I sent it to him and his wife. I was, in, I was in contact with his wife and his wife said, oh, you know, he loved the picture. Thanks very much. You know, it really cheered him up a little bit. So that was that was really nice. Unfortunately, I never, I never actually got to, mm. got to meet him. But I mean I, did, I mean, I did read him and I did have a huge ad- admiration for him. All these great journalists, I divide them into Glanvillians and um, Calvinists. The Calvinists are the ones who get the story, reporters searching for the uh, diamond in the coal, whereas the Glanvillians are the ones who nowadays they do the laptops with the expected goal figures and all of that. Is is stats-led commentary big in Brazilian football coverage or is it still personality-led? Um, it's becoming more and more stats-led. In England, it's, you know, it's, it's almost impossible to interview players unless you're a broadcaster, unless you have a... You know, you know, a million followers on Twitter. It's almost impossible to get an interview with a football player, and so that's left a huge gap. And the reason we're talking about stats so much right, right. now, I think, is because it, there's, you know, there's some, the media need to find someone to write about. You know, stats have taken the place of personalities in, 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 a, in a huge way. As this goes out, I would have said, "Well, I thought this three months ago, but yeah, I thought of this yesterday because I've got this." Reams and reams and reams of paper, squillions of words, which is the correct term, in this football library. Uh, and you'll be able to access them with your Pat Stanton library card. Yeah, I've, I've read that book all about the great Hybees team of the 50s and 60s. And Pat Stanton, does he have this big barrel chest? Is that the Pat Stanton I'm thinking of? No, Pat Stanton was like an elegant midfielder, box-to-box midfielder. Who? Next player ever to come out of Scotland. Uh, don't let anyone tell you it was uh, it was Dennis Law or Kenny Douglas or any of them. It was Pat Stanton. <laughs> well, I know I know that that's the correct thing to say in the eastern part of Edinburgh. I think I might get away with it in the in the west. But yeah, "Sunshine on Leith" is the unofficial anthem of Scotland as a whole. Um, that and Baccarat, "Yes, Sir, I Can Boogie." What did you make of Stevie Clark's Scotland team this summer? Just gone. Yeah, I mean it's. It was disappointing that, that we you know, we never went further, as it always is. You have to remember, this is Scotland's first appearance in a, in a major tournament for you know, since 1998. So, you know, these guys were coming into this without a lot of experience at a, a, a big tournament like this. They'll, they'll be disappointed. You know, I think the defeat against the Czech Republic was a decisive result. But going down to, to Wembley and, and, you know, drawing with England was, was, was an amazing performance. And, you know, England beat everyone else, I think, and, or they, they, they scored against everyone else. And they struggled against Scotland, and I mean that's what will be remembered in Scotland. It's kind of, 
it's disappointing that we, you know, our triumph was a, was a was a draw against England. But you know, that's the way football's gone now. Is ever since you know the early nineteen nineties with the with, with Sky Money and you know the new stadiums and you know it's all become about money and there's so much more money sloshing around in England compared to Scotland that Scotland just can't compete any longer. Well, no, I, I spoke to Paddy Barkley a long time ago and I said, how do we make Scottish football great again? And he said, well, look at the Dutch, look at the Belgians. Belgium are the number one team in the world as we speak. So do you think Scotland can be more like Belgium? Yeah, Scotland can be more like Belgium, can be more like Uruguay, can be more like you know, Denmark or, or Iceland. Yeah, a lot of it's that organisation, of course. But a lot of it is, is down simply to money, resources and size. You know, Scotland is a small country. You know, it's very difficult for a country like Scotland these days. So, you know, I don't see Scotland. I mean, Scotland have, have always, you also have to remember as well, Scotland have always been there or thereabouts. But we've never, even with our greatest teams in our, in our history, we've never got past the first round of the World Cup. So it's, it's kind of daft to believe that Scotland are going to be like Belgium and get to the semi-finals or be like Uruguay and, and, and win it. That's kind of, that's never going to happen. I think what we have to do is get at least get back to being, uh, you know, a team that can qualify every year and can, can you know, can beat you know, other big teams on occasion and scare other big teams. That's where we need to get, you know, look to get them back to first and foremost. I hope so. And there are some really good Scottish men and also Scottish women. I've, Brazil won the gold medal. They beat Spain in the Olympics just gone. The women's team fell short. Um, <clears throat> but that's a good sign. There's all these young kids coming through in Brazil. I would imagine most of them play in Europe because that's how it works now. Do you, do you see any of these youngsters coming through in time for Qatar or do we have to wait until um, the American World Cup in four years' time? I think it's difficult for a player that's unknown now to... I don't think any players that we've not heard of now will, will, will make it to Qatar. It's only a year. You know, I think you need more time to get, to get embedded into the team. I mean, I remember Neymar and Ganso in 2010, the similar kind of situation. They were really, you know, they were ripping up the, the Brazilian league and there was a lot of calls for them to go in 2010 and they weren't taken. Tichi knows his team. He knows what he's doing. He, he, he has his he has his squad. He has his players. He'll, he'll know what he's doing. He'll know mm. the players that are ready and the players that are not. I, I'm just shaking my head when I think about Neymar because he has earned so much money. I described Lionel Messi a few weeks ago as a content creator rather than a footballer. Is there a danger that Neymar's legacy... Which, I mean, it'll help if Brazil win the World Cup with him, and he's won other things. But Pele and uh, Phenomeno Ronaldo and Rivellino and Socrates. I think my question is: Can you imagine writing a book about Neymar in the way that you wrote your book about Socrates? No, probably not. Uh, it's 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 just so difficult these days. You know, you don't get any access. It's you know, I wouldn't want to write a book about Neymar. Uh, it's, he's not a subject that, that I think would hold my attention for the time it takes to write a book uh, yeah. and I just think well, you know, I think it would be difficult, I think they'd make it difficult uh, and I don't want to be writing a book just from you know, interviewing his former you know, you know, coach when he was an 11 year old or something like that you know, to write a proper book about Neymar you need to have access, if not to Neymar then at least to you know, the players who played with him, and that's almost, as I said, that's almost impossible these days. It's very, very difficult to get interviews with football football players. Mm. And even when you do get interviews, it's very difficult to get inter- footballers to talk about anything. Yeah. Well, uh, what uh, about Phenomeno just, Ronaldo? Just say, what about him? Ronaldo one day will decide he's going to write his book. I mean, I think that's that'll happen. Uh, why hasn't he done it so far? I don't know. But Ronaldo is like an international corporation, like Neymar is. I mean, he's, you know, one of the, 
one of the most recognised faces on the planet. If Ronaldo wants to write a book, then you know he will. He's not going to open a, open open his uh, you know his personal archives and sit down with me unless there's a, a lot of money in it for him. And as I said, to write a book like this, you mean you, you just don't get paid very much. There's no reason that a guy like Ronaldo or Neymar would help a guy like me yeah. when they could write their own book and get all the money themselves. Which is why it's so brilliant that your book, The Greatest Show on Earth, which does use lots of secondary material, or primary material, I should say, in the way that you've read books and articles. Uh, you've also spoken to Monsieur Arsene Wenger. Did you actually speak to him or did you get it from his... Um, well, he's, he's, he's part of FIFA he, he, now, isn't he? Yeah, he gave it to FIFA for the around about the time of the 19th, uh, the 50th anniversary. It's just one quote he talks about. And the last chapter in the book is about the, the legacy of the 1970 team and, you know, how, how it's seen today. And I think Wenger, you know, Wenger gives a, you know, talks about the importance of it and, you know, how how, how he remembers Pele. Well, your, your introduction to the book um, notes that it was a superlative tournament. It was about modernity. So the final question I've got before you go off and pack, I guess because you're off to Brazil. Bon voyage. I don't know what the Portuguese for bon voyage is. It's probably bon voyage. Bon voyage. Bon voyage. Bon voyage. Cool. Bon voyage. Good, good, good. But yes, uh, this tournament's 50 years ago. Because it was in colour, because the technology had caught up, um, it was the first modern World Cup. And not just that, but in 1966, Rattan was ordered off the pitch. He was never actually shown a physical red card. Whereas if Rattan had done his nonsense in 1970, he would have been issued a card. The reason that England lost to Germany is because Ramsey used the new luxury of bringing someone off the bench. True or false? Discuss. There's two main reasons, I think, why England lost to West Germany. One is, yeah, he withdrew Bobby Charlton uh, when they were 2-1 down thinking that he was going to preserve Charlton for the semi-final. Uh, and there was also the fact that Gordon Banks was it was took ill before the game and he was replaced by Peter Bonetti, who didn't have his best day. Uh, and I think uh, the two things together uh, led to England's demise. And, and that was that was really the last time, until, until you can argue now, it was the last time that England went into a tournament with having any real hopes of winning it. Uh, after 1978, you know, they never qualified in 74 and 78, and then you know throughout the 80s and 90s and 2000s, no one really believed that England were going to go and win the World Cup, except for maybe English football fans and and, 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 and reporters. So yeah, it was that that defeat against Germany was you know the end of an era for England. It really was the end of an era. And I'm, I'm so conscious that we've spent an hour really talking about Brazil and briefly Pat Stanton, the best. Scottish footballer. Some say the best in the world, Pat Stanton, actually. Yeah, these people know what they're talking about. Even in Brazil, you go go to any favela, it's Pat Stanton. That's all they talk about. Not, not... I've seen, I remember Messi, I remember Messi scoring a goal and lifting up his shirt and underneath was a picture of Pat Stanton. <laughs> Allegedly. <laughs> um, yeah, so Allegedly. you've written this book about the 1970 World Cup. What one thing did you learn that you always quote in amazement to other people about this tournament from 51 years ago? People think that Brazil won it through sheer ingenuity, through sheer skill, but they didn't. They won it because they were organised. They won it because they were better trained. They won it because they'd prepared and done the hard physical preparation. And you see that because I think 12 of their 17 goals or 12 of their 19 goals were scored in the second half. Brazilians were just supremely uh, organised 
uh, and supremely fit. And that was, I think, one of the, the decisive factors in them, if not the decisive factor in them winning the World Cup, even though they had all these brilliant, amazing players. The fact that they were fit and they were ready and they were prepared gave them, a, gave them an advantage. That's very interesting because the modern game is all about stamina and fitness and getting in the right place. I, I would remark every time England scored, I would go, look at where that goal is scored. Look at the move that has led to the goal. Usually we're going to hit the byline, cut it back across into the corridor or, or lift it in from deep. And that's the most effective way to score a goal. There is a danger that football becomes like chess or basketball. But the fact that I'm going to tell everyone is that the 1970 World Cup was the most exciting because the average was about four goals per game and it's got nowhere... God, 1990 must have been a horrific, horrific World Cup to watch because you wanted to see 1970 again and you're getting the, bar- the pass back all the time. Yeah, I mean, you can see the, the goals per game. I mean, Switzerland, you know, Switzerland in 1954 was more than five goals a game. You know, and after that, Essentially, it was it was two point something, two point something, two point something. Mm. You know, and in Mexico it went. Uh, in Mexico it went right up, went way up. And this story is told in the greatest show on earth, just in time for Christmas, twenty twenty one. Get it for the person who may have grown up with memories of that nineteen seventy World Cup. Yes, bon voyage. Have a safe journey back to Brazil. Uh, when this goes out, Argentina will be playing Brazil. Uh, Brazil have nothing to fear. You've won six games. You'll probably win three more or six more coming up. Um, where is the next? Do you have any um, matches booked to go to in the next few months? No, not really. No, no. Good. Are you working on anything else or just Reuters work? Yeah, just more Reuters work for now. Great. Very best of luck with that. And um, if you do write another book to go along with Dr. Socrates... Uh, then we'll have you back in the football library. Uh, but one thing I've learned today, Pat Stanton, best player that's ever played. Best player!